Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Welcome to another episode which features another remarkable creative life. George Adams grew up in a small village in Scotland and then spent the first five years of his working life at an explosives factory before deciding there must be more to life and self-funding himself through a degree in commerce and marketing. George's dream was to write and make television drama at the BBC. With no job opportunities at the BBC in Scotland, George headed to London to try his luck and incredibly landed a job at the BBC through sheer luck, really, and, of course, the chutzpah to have a crack. George quickly worked his way up the ranks and before long was network executive on dozens of major telemovies, A Foreign Field starring Alec McGuinness, Jean Moreau and Lauren Bacall and others starring the likes of Hugh Grant, Alan Rickman, Albert Finney, Richard Harris and Gabrielle Byrne. On leaving the BBC, George joined Carlton TV as the executive in charge of drama production, then several stints with the biggest players in the biz, VP and head of business affairs and production for Columbia TriStar Sony's joint venture, Golden Square Pictures, Next up, head of drama production at Granada UK, which is now ITVG. Whilst at ITV, George guided TV shows including Class Act starring Joanna Lumley, Sharp with Sean Bean, Rebecca starring Charles Dance, Diana Rigg and Faye Dunaway, Tough Love with Ray Winston. By this time, George is married to an Aussie lass and has two young kids. They decide... Australia might be a better place to raise the kids, so off they go. George's first appointment was as executive in charge of production at the then newly formed Australian shingle of Granada Productions. In 2003, George formed Gap Media and produced the ABC commission documentary Outback Opera. George also created the award-winning drama Bed of Roses, which ran on the ABC for three seasons. He was executive producer of the movie Wolf Creek, which went on to be one of the most successful R-rated Australian movies of all time. George then created and acted as both producer and showrunner on seasons one through five of Australia's highest rating returning drama series year on year with the Dr. Blake Mysteries. The show was a hit across the world running on BBC One, Netflix USA and over 130 territories with an incredibly devoted fan base. Other major credits included EP on the BAFTA award-winning UK drama Mrs Biggs, the 3D IMAX movie Hidden Universe, producer of Australia on Trial on the ABC, a spin-off TV movie The Blake Mysteries for Channel 7, which actually went on to be the highest-rated TV movie of the year. George's developed, produced, managed, and controlled well in excess of $850 million worth of TV drama production in the UK, Europe and Australia. Working in the screen industry, certainly not for the faint of heart, but George has managed to navigate a path with more ups than downs and keep his sense of humour intact. Please welcome to the blank canvas, George Adams.
Good morning, George. Good morning, Lee. How are you? Very lovely to see you after all this time. I'm well. And, mate, look at that. You've had a haircut. Was it just for me? Yeah, it was, actually. I thought, I better get my haircut. I was looking like, I don't know, either a roadie from Genesis or a very bad drummer for a 70s band you've never heard of. And I thought, it's time to get a haircut, Adams. <laughs> now... Now, that's a good segue into you were a drummer in a band in the 70s, weren't you? They were a <laughs> yes, great band, yes, so was. it wasn't you yeah. you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. No, we, um, yeah, we, we, uh, yeah, we did that in the 70s, and uh, we thought it was great fun, and it was great fun. Uh, we were rubbish, probably, but, um, but we had great fun doing it. And, uh, yeah, it was an interesting time. We started getting nudged away in the 70s by DJs who were coming in and taking over the sets, so... We used to get a full set as a band. You'd end up getting half the set, and the DJ would come on and play music for the rest of the night. And I thought, well, hang on a wee minute. That's not on. Maybe if I just buy myself a couple of decks, I can be drummer in the band for half the night and DJ for the second half of the night. So I kind of segued into that, really. Wow. Mate, no, so you were, you were pivoting in the 70s. Man, I, yeah, Scotland in the seventies was like uh, like the plague years. It was just mostly alcohol that was the plague, unfortunately. I think more than anything else. So, as a musician, did you record albums and and? Hell no! I, I had I had one opportunity to join, well, to go on audition. I think more than anything else, down in London for one quite famous band called Horslips, who are kind of progressive Irishy rock kind of band. And they'd have me play some gig somewhere and thought that I could be the guy for them. And it was one of those moments, to be honest, where, I don't know, I was, you know, I was just a kid from, you know, Dreghorn, tiny wee Scottish village. And, and um, I never really felt that I could uh, make a living doing that kind of nonsense. So I, I, I thought I should probably go and get a job instead. So I kind of did. I did that. And then here I am back. <laughs> doing even more ridiculous things than drumming in bands, and that's making up stories and trying to get folk to buy them. Yeah, so it all goes around and comes around, doesn't it? Oh, it's a crazy life, isn't it? God, yeah. It sort of yeah. doesn't matter which path you take, it's got plenty of twists and turns in store, doesn't it? It sure does, man, and you never know where it's going to take you next, and you never stop learning, which is the interesting thing. I found that fascinating. I mean, this, you know, this whole thing we've gone through and are still going through to some extent, certainly in the rest of the world. It's been fascinating, hasn't it? It's been a kind of revelatory in lots of ways, I think. Kind of the emperor's new clothes of disease, I say. You know, it's shown us everything that's naked and wrong in the world. And now the question is, what do we do about it? So that's going to be the next step. It's going to be fascinating to see how we, how we respond to all this, you know? What do we do? Do we still let old folks' homes be the mess they are? Do we still let unemployment and homelessness still be the problem that it obviously has always been you know and and for us here in Australia there's the whole question of First Nation and how we integrate in a way that we haven't done before um, it's going to be fascinating for all of us I think so yeah interesting times as the Chinese would say yeah you're not talking about the Chinese anymore of course because that's also you know. <laughs> no you're absolutely yeah. right mate big questions and and all all needing answers and you're right yeah. it's like so many things have shifted and I think we've all seen how thin the social veneer is over the last yes. year. And yeah. I think probably every one of us has had that thought, wow, well, I was taking that for granted and I'm not yeah. going to anymore. And the challenge is how long you stay in that mindset. Exactly. You know, Mate, tell me, uh, for somebody that grew up in a, a little town, dare I say a village in Scotland. You could call it a village. Okay. Um <laughs> How did you, you know, wind up 
in London at the BBC, essentially in charge of guiding, producing, script editing, I guess, various hats you had. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. hundreds of hours of, of TV drama across Europe, the UK, and then to Australia. That's a bloody good question. How did I do that? I, I, I sometimes look back and wonder how I managed it myself, actually. I, I Well, I... I I had always wanted to be a writer, actually. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer. And this is a kind of damning indictment on teachers who say the wrong thing at the wrong time. And, and so when I was asked in my final year what I wanted to be when I grew up kind of thing, which I still ponder now and again myself now, I said to the director, as he was at that time, the headmaster, I wanted to be a writer. And he said, well, that's never going to happen. And I went, oh, okay. And, and I kind of took him at his word a bit. And then there was this lovely old uh, history teacher called Cleo Wilson, who um, took me aside and said, just ignore him and do what you want to do, son. And I went, oh, that's interesting. But I didn't listen to her voice for quite a long time. And so, so I went and got a job. And I, I worked in ICI for about five years. And in the meantime, in the evenings, I was DJing and playing in bands and stuff. But my job was working in ICI and quite, I guess, a kind of dead-end job, but it was all right, you know. So three or four years into that. What's ICI, mate? Sorry to interrupt. ICI is Imperial Chemical Industries. So oh, it was, oh, a, it okay. was Bell's Explosives, actually. So a big explosives plant. And every so often when you were there working, like about every six months, there'd be this loud explosion somewhere in the plant and somebody would lose an arm or a leg or some damn thing. It was a pretty dangerous place to be in many ways, but it was a very big employer in the west coast of Scotland. So I was working there, and, and then they had this thing called Walking the Plank, every so often where their up-and-coming promising employees were put in front of the chairman of the company who would say, well done, George, you're doing a great job, you know, great future here in ICI for you, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of went, yeah, it's really interesting. You're laying people off at the moment. I wondered if I could get a redundancy package because I want to go to college. And, um, and, and so reluctantly, God bless them, they did pay me out. And I used that money to put myself through college because I had – I'd gone to the BBC in Scotland and spoken to the head of contracts in BBC Scotland, who became a mate in my gym preacher, and said, look, I want to work in television. And he said, have you got a degree? And I said, no. And he said, well, rule number one with the BBC, son, no degree, no, no interview. So that was the first barrier to entry, basically, into the BBC. So he said, get yourself a degree, come back and talk to me. So long story short, I went and got a degree in uh, commerce and marketing with uh, media studies in the third year tenuous link to media and so I uh, I called him back up once I got my degree and said oh hi Jim it's, uh, you want to remember me George Adams I got that degree I, I want a job at the BBC and he said ah, we're just laying people off here in Glasgow at the moment this was 586 I suppose and uh, and he said but I'll send your CV down to London and it was one of those first kind of moments well certainly first I was ever aware of where just sheer chance and good timing played its part because seemingly I found out from the head of personnel at BBC Worldwide many years later, she was just walking through their main personnel office and saw my CV lying on a desk when she stopped to talk to someone and just kind of flicked through my CV and went, oh, this is quite interesting. We should see this kid. And so, wow. yeah, they called me up and, and I got a job. Uh, I got a job doing video clearances because that was the new thing back then. And they were clearing old TV shows for video release. And they wanted some idiot to come in and do that job. But actually, it was really handy. It was a great way to find out about every element of television because I had to re-clear contractually every person involved in the making of TV shows and indeed on radio collection shows as well. So it allowed me to 
on paper at least, get my head around exactly what was involved in production and talk to some really weird and wonderful people on the phone trying to get them to agree to the ridiculously small fee they were being paid as a residual payment to allow us to release things on video. And some people were great uh, and some people were, were not so keen. Uh, Sting was less than keen about the amount of money being offered. And indeed, I had this weird moment where I was talking to what I thought was his management, but it turned out to be his PA. And I was just trying to convince her that this paltry amount of money was worth it for whatever it was Sting was in. I think it might have been in Brimstone and Treacle or some play for today thing for the BBC. And all I could hear was a kind of voice in the background. And then suddenly I'm talking and he, he said, look, son, it's not enough money. And I, I don't want to do it. And I went, oh, okay. And that was Sting and he put the phone down. So that was the end of that one. <laughs> I still liked him. But yeah, and usually people were very nice, but it, it kind of taught me how to negotiate and talk people into doing things that they don't necessarily want to do, which, as you know, is part of the job, in a way, is constantly convincing people that the most ridiculous notions are exactly what they want to do with their lives. And um, so, yeah, so I, I did that for about a year. Back in those days, every BBC building had a bar in it. So the BBC Club Bar was very heavily frequented by most BBC employees. And I was no exception to that rule. And so I found myself in with, I found myself in with the comedy guys for some reason. So I found myself drinking with Barry Cryer and all those kind of old comedy heads, you know. And, and after about six months of sort of ingratiating myself with them, they kind of said, what do you want to do? And I said, I actually want to work in drama. And they went, oh, okay. Um, and I said, but I don't know anything about it, except I watched a lot of it when I was a kid. And after, yeah, about two months after I suggested that as a notion, I got a call from Mark Shivers, who was head of BBC Films. Uh, Mark said, I hear you want to be in drama. And I said, yes, I do. He said, well, come and see me. So I went over to TV Centre and went up to the sixth floor and went into his office rather nervously. And uh, he was there with a fantastic guy uh, who was this kind of line producer guy in-house, you know. And they said, uh, look, we've got this independent TV film. starts Monday. Here's the script. Here's the schedule. Uh, here's the budget. Good luck. In fact, basically, I think Jeffries might have said, don't fuck it up. And I went, uh, but I don't know anything about it. And Mark said, you're a bright guy, you'll pick it up. And I went, oh, okay. So, so that was it, I was off. This was like on the Wednesday, I think, from memory. And I had to be at Pinewood Studios on the, on the Monday morning to talk to two enormously experienced producers about how they should make their film. Yeah, and they made me really comfortable by Pinewood at that time, I think... Patriot Games was being filmed there. And uh, they had the first meeting with me in the set of the Whitehall offices that had been built for Patriot Games. So it was this enormous long room with this enormous shiny table. And they were sitting down one end of it and I had to walk all the way down and sit down beside them and, and pretend that I had any idea of what I was talking about. Uh, <laughs> the only thing I had going for me was uh, Mark said, now remember, Script drives the schedule, schedule drives the budget. Basically, that's all you've got to know. I went, okay. And in truth, I still use that <laughs> today because it's, it's an absolute truth. That's, how, that's kind of how it functions from a money point of view. And, and yeah, so I had to kind of, I spent about 40 minutes nodding and smiling sagely as though I knew what I was doing. And then, then it turned a corner quite quickly in a conversation and I, I had no idea. And I thought, well, it's this moment where I either just keep bluffing it, or I put my hand up and say, look, I'm really sorry, but I have no idea what I'm doing. So I decided I'd put my hand up and say, 
I'm really sorry, but I'm sure you've spotted the fact that I have no idea what I'm talking about. And all I can ask is that you're gentle with me and I don't lose my job. And they both just laughed and said, thank God for that. We were wondering whether you were going to bluff it or whether you were going <laughs> to. And they, and they were great. And they did screw us a little bit, but not so much that I lost my job. So that was good. Mate, you know, that's, that's fantastic. What an awesome story. There's so many life lessons in that whole journey thus far, isn't there, from going out and you know getting the degree. I mean, even back with the, the headmaster and it's like, yeah, the danger of those kind of evaluations that you can get yeah. from, from people that's at that. Common, yeah, know? yeah, that. And then it made me laugh with you working in an explosives factory because kind of in a way what you're doing, a, yeah. a great line came from Tony Ayres, you, you know of a great writer, yeah, producer yeah. who I had on the podcast earlier. He said this thing of like, well, you know, making drama, it's a bit like you're playing with nitroglycerin and, you know, you want it to sort of blow up on the screen. I'm paraphrasing here. But sometimes it blows up in your hands. Yeah. And, and so it's kind of yeah, being... we, we've all been there and it's, uh, <laughs> it's right. a tricky game uh, you know that's right so it's funny here you are you know you're off working in an explosive factory and then you <laughs> you know pivot into but making, it, making but it drama was you know it, it was it was it was great experience because um you know you had to learn how to deal with a, a whole array of different people in that job you know and, and 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 kind of manage i don't know always managing people i think seems to have been part of my DNA, I don't know quite why, but I've always felt able to some extent, lesser or greater, to create environments where people can kind of thrive, I guess, is what you try to do to some extent and, and, and do the best work they can do because that's what you want from everyone who's working on a show, you know, and that, that only happens when people are comfortable. Yeah, you know? no, you're absolutely right, mate. Well, you definitely excel at that having worked with you. You created an incredible team and culture. We'll talk more about the Dr. Blake mysteries later, but that was an absolute joy to work on and yeah. like absolutely as far as uh, a great team all working, heading towards the same direction with the same goal and all inspired to give their absolute best. I put that at the top of things I've worked on in that regard. You're definitely an inspiring leader. Yes, you've got the gift of the gab, but you've got a huge heart and you want everyone to win, which which is the difference. Yeah, you want everyone to, you know what it's like, I have no idea what I'm saying. Sometimes I still don't know what, what I'm going to have to think. But you kind of know where you're heading, you know. And I, I read something that Spielberg had said really early on in the game of what's laughingly called my career. And he had said that for him, we were only as good as the weakest element in the chain. So the trick, in a way, was to make sure there weren't any weak elements in the chain. And by that, he meant, like, tell everyone what we're trying to achieve that day, right down to the kid who's the runner, you know. Because if everyone understands on a, on a crew of, you know, 65-odd people, give or take, maybe more, but on an Australian TV drama around that number, if everyone understands on that day what it is we're trying to do, then there's a damn good chance we'll do it. But if... Even just a kid who no one thinks is important, who maybe is just a runner who's getting teas and coffees and whatever. But if they're not aware of what it is we're trying to do, then they might just not go and get that cup of tea or that cup of coffee. And there, somebody will go, oh, I wish I'd had that cup of tea. And then they're thinking about that, not thinking about what they're meant to be doing. Before you know where you are, that kind of snowballs into a certain feeling of unease around the whole place. And you don't really know where it came from because it's kind of an amorphous thing. But it just came from somebody not just being across what they needed to do at that moment in time because they weren't on it. They didn't feel part of the team. You know, they didn't feel included in the, in the, in the show. So I think for me, that's always 
the most important thing is to make sure everybody feels part of the game. Yeah, no, that's you know, what's the point of being there otherwise, you know? No, you're right, mate. No, that's that's beautiful. With the schedule, the, the way film and television shoots a schedule, particularly in Australia, I mean, it's kind of like an impossible task really every day. So if you don't have every little element sort of aligned, yeah, you're, you're going to come unstuck somewhere and, you know, obviously unexpected things turn up. But if everyone's kind of sailing in the same direction and alert, then you can handle it quickly and, you know, you still shoot yeah. the schedule. So. You can, yeah, and you can, and you can adapt. I mean, as you know, we were very often, in most days, there was hardly a day went by when we didn't rewrite something on the day. And it wasn't that the scripts weren't good. It was just that as you're going along, the actual actor's performance changes the sense of what it is you're trying to achieve. And you go, oh, now that I've seen you play that part, I don't think those words actually suit you anymore. So we'll just change them. Well, you know, if it's not right, you don't just keep going. You go, well, we'll change it. But to be able to do that, you've got to have a really adaptable group of people around you, you know, from actors to directors to DOPs and everyone else in the art department all have to be able to shuffle real fast to accommodate your uh, crazy notions on the drop of a hat to go, yeah, maybe we'll do this now. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I, I want to talk more about the Dr. Blake mysteries, but we will later. Um, yeah. Something else that, that you said that really indicated to me was while you were on the phones that first gig at the BBC and you were having to talk to a lot of people and you were having to, you know, often steer them and use sales skills to, you mm. know, get them over the line. I just totally relate to that because prior to, you know, one of the things that got me in the business and got my first jobs to direct and produce was literally just going, okay, I'm at this production company and I'm a technician. How do I sort of get up the ladder and produce and direct? And I thought, okay, well, if I can get the work, then I can just, you know, do that. So I literally picked up a phone book from A and started cold calling companies um, saying, you know, hi, this is Lee Rogers from VisionLink. And, you know, do you have any corporate video requirements and that? And I said, oh, man, that's a tougher gig than I ever did. Cold call is tough. You know, trying to sell a project to people you don't know is the trickiest part of the game. I'm not bad at it, but I don't particularly enjoy it. You're right. It becomes a sales game, first of all, really, you know, and, and it's not so much about what the core of your project's about. It's trying to find out what will make these people buy it. And it may not be the same things. You know, your show may be quite esoteric, but you're talking to a bunch of guys who don't want esoteric. They want shoot them up. So what do you do? You know, you try and dress it up in a way that feels like something they'll want. You're absolutely right. But I think those skills we acquired at that time helped us so much because, you you know, you're often making film TV, whether you're selling it or whether you're on set, you know, you're constantly problem solving and having sort of things originated and you need to solve them and answer them and, you know, keep people happy. I'll tell you, when I first started negotiating with agents in London, and I hadn't been there that long, actually, and it was still part of this whole... Independent production was quite new back in kind of 87, 88. There weren't too many independent production companies around because all the networks still made their shows in-house. Everybody worked in-house for the BBC and for ITV, and and there were no independent producers particularly working out, except in documentary. There were quite a lot of guys in documentary, which is why a lot of early independent production in the UK was factual. Uh, It wasn't drama. It wasn't comedy. That came later. But it was starting to happen. And so I was given the task of negotiating with one of the big agents in London who was very well known and is still around. I was not going to say his name, but I'll say his name because he would kind of kind of like it. It was Duncan Heath. And Duncan Heath was a legendary 
agent in London, still is. Sunken Teeth, we used to call him back in the day because he was a bit of a vampire, but he was great at his job and he really looked after his clients and he looked after pretty much everyone, but he was a really tough negotiator. And we had this sticky problem on a show and they said, George, you go in and try and sort this out with Duncan. And I went, oh, okay. So I kind of, you know, really at that time, totally unaware of pretty much who Duncan was, to be honest, went and laid down everything, talked him through the contract, talked him through the issues. And he was smiling and he was nodding and it all seemed fine. And then lovely to meet you. Off you went. Now, back in those days, you would then go back to your office and write out a letter confirming all the stuff you'd said in the meeting. Then you'd put the letter in the post and send it by pigeon to whoever, whoever the hell you were talking to. And about four or five days later, you'd maybe get a phone call, you know, or two weeks later, you get a responding letter back. You know, that's how quickly things moved in the old days. So I'd done this thing with Duncan. It was all fine and smiling, naughty. And then I would send off the confirmation letter of what we talked about. And five days later, phone call, Duncan's office. Oh, Josh, Duncan here, just confirming. This is what we agreed, yeah? I went, yeah, 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 absolutely. He went, yeah, okay, great, fine. And he sounded a bit puzzled, but off he went. And I thought, oh, fantastic, that was easy. Cut to about two months later, other issue with Duncan's, you dealt with Duncan last time. He seems to like you. You talked to him again. So we had a meeting. We sit down. We chat it through. He smiles. He nods. He goes away. I send a letter. Five days later, phone call, Duncan. George, I'm just not sure this is what I agreed to. I said, no, no, it absolutely was. It was. He said, mate, can I be honest with you? I said, sure. He said, I can't understand a fucking word you're saying. Because my Scottish accent was so thick back in those days. So he was just smiling and nodding, which I was taking as confirmation that all was well. I'd send up the letter and send it off to him saying, just confirming that we've agreed that, you know, Joe Splow get paid X, Y, and Z. And so in the end, he had to say, mate, we don't know what you're talking about. We like you, but we've got no idea what you're saying. So I had to kind of temper my accent down to, this is as tempered as it gets. But then I was, you know, kind of fresh off the boat. So I kind of, you know, was talking a very broad Glasgow Ayrshire kind of accent. That, that, that's gold, yeah. mate. That's that's fantastic. Hey, um, so tell me, you you're at the BBC. You've you've faked it till you've made it <laughs> yes. there with your first gigs. Tell us about you know it's a massive organisation, the BBC, and obviously yeah. extremely competitive and a lot of stuff being made. How did you navigate your way kind of up the ladder in seniority and get onto yeah. some of these massive series that you uh, EP? Yeah. Well, look, I kind of worked out quite early on in the game because going down to London was quite a call back in those days. Like my dad was, I wouldn't say he was horrified that I was going to work in England, but he kind of, yeah, he didn't take it that well. And, you know, it was, it was kind of working for the enemy, I think, in my dad's head a little bit. And But when I got down there, I realised that most of the people down there, there were jobs they didn't want to do. I don't know if you watched the series Ray Donovan. I was a bit like a smaller version of Ray Donovan, except they didn't kill or hit people. Well, not very often anyway. But but I take on those tasks that people really didn't want to do. And I thought, there's an opportunity here to make myself invaluable <laughs> to the powers that be by just doing all the crap jobs. So anything that needed, to, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> terms of trade with TPA, which became packed, residual schedules for actors and overseas sales of shows, you know, horribly, tediously boring, bloody stuff, really, that nobody wanted to do. I go, yeah, I'll do that. I can do that. So I drafted the terms of trade with PAC. Like me, I, I, no, I had no idea what I was doing. Absolutely not a clue. But it seemed to me that 
nodded anyone else and no one wanted the job so I'd do it and so I became the BBC's guy that would talk to PACT about residual agreements and terms of trade and and that got me known to management and I thought well if I keep doing that kind of stuff management will eventually spot that I might be useful for other things and at best won't fire me so that would be handy you know and um, so I, good strategy I, man yeah so I just I started doing that and then weird things would happen there was a moment when Dennis Potter was uh sadly was dying and his last two TV shows were going to be simultaneously commissioned by the BBC and Channel 4. And then Channel 4 would show one at one point and then flip it and the BBC would show the other one and vice versa. But Dennis Potter was guaranteed his last two shows were going to be on telly and they were going to be shown and blah, blah, blah. But he was getting his estate ready. You know, he was literally dying as he was finishing off these shows. And so Alan Yentop, who was at that time controller of BBC Two, called me in my office and said, hey, George, we're trying to get a check out to Dennis Potter and we can't seem to get the accounts department to get that check out the door before the end of next week. Is there anything you could do to speed that along? I'm going, well, well, yeah, I can, Alan, but you are the controller of BBC Two. I mean, surely they, you know, if Alan Yentop says he needs to check out, he said, yeah, but so I don't really want to be seen to be pushing a check out the door for one guy and not someone else. So could you maybe... So I called the accounts guys and said, hey, guys, how are you doing? Look, I need to check now. Can I come up and get it for Dennis Potter? He's dying. And they went, I oh, sure does, no problem. And I'd go and get the check and take it down to Yentop's office and put it in his desk. And he'd go, thanks, George, that's fantastic. No one else could have done that. And I'm thinking, well, pretty much anyone else could have done that, actually, in the great scheme of things. But sure, why don't you carry on thinking that? <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> I started to get known as the guy who could fix shit. And that became kind of a pathway, for want of a better word. And then Jonathan Powell, who'd been controller of BBC One, went to the newly formed Carlton Television, which was the company that, I don't know if you remember, there was a, a huge controversy during Thatcher years of, of a documentary called Death on the Rock which was a very honest look at uh, an IRA gunman being shot by the SAS in Gibraltar. And a really great documentary filmmaker made it, and it got Thames Television and the documentary filmmaker in a lot of shit because it really went against the Thatcher government. And Thatcher said at that point, we cannot allow television networks to have that much freedom again. And so they centralised the independent networks into ITV, and gave the franchise for Thames Television out to the market. So as a result, a guy called Philip Green got the franchise, the Thames Television franchise, and set up Carlton TV. And Jonathan Pell went off to be the controller of drama for Carlton Television. At the same time, I was at the BBC, chundering away doing my nonsense. There was a thing called Section 35 in Ireland, which was a big tax break, and no one really understood it. And so I went, oh, <laughs> I'm your man, let me, go and, let me go and have a look at that. And, and it was basically just a, a wash-through fund from the Irish government where you put your money in the bank on day one and it washed out the next day with a 20% attachment to it. So and, and you got it there and then. It wasn't like now where you've got to spend the money to get the money. You actually got it ahead of the game. It's fantastic. Wow. Anyway, the BBC board needed that explaining to them because they worried that it was about laundering money, you know. And so I had to go and explain to the board, which at that time also included Jonathan, about the Irish tax break. Cut to four months later, he's now head of drama at Carlton Television. And I get a call from his office saying, Jonathan would like to come and explain the Section 35 deal to the Carlton board because we're thinking of using it, blah, blah, blah. So I went in and did that. And about three days later, Jonathan called me up and said, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, 
still production executive here. You know, and he said, do you want to come work with me? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? Okay, yeah. And off we went. So I went in for a, a, a chat with him, got the job. And then I had this kind of funny moment where his two IC were sitting talking to me about the money, you know. And in those days, and don't get me wrong, the BBC money was shit out, but this job effectively doubled my salary. And so I'm chatting away and, and I said, so what are we talking about salary-wise? He gave me the number. And I swallowed uh, because it was quite a large number in comparison to what I've been getting. And this guy misread it as me thinking that's not enough. And he thought I was just trying to be nice and not saying, you know. And so he said very quickly, of course, there's always been an argument that the uh, production executive for drama should be paid a bit more than, than the other production executives in the other genres. And I said, I think that's an excellent argument and you should stick with that. And so they offered me another 10 grand. And I went, great, thanks very much. And I left and I, I literally went to the pub across the road in St. Martin's Lane and called my wife and said, I just got paid a shitload of money. Thanks very much. See you later. And so I moved to Carlton TV. And, um, and having thought I would never leave the BBC, when I joined the Beeb, I was convinced that I was going to be in the BBC for the rest of my life and that I'd wow. never, ever leave. But I got kind of, I got kind of bored with it, actually. Because once you'd worked it all out, once you'd worked out the, the, the kind of structure of it, it's very civil service-like in a way. It was very recruitment-y driven, you know, move up your levels. They had different levels of employee and all that. Once you'd worked out a pattern, you knew you'd just stay there and you'd be there forever, probably. Yeah. So yeah, gotcha. I was quite happy to go in the way in the end. Wow. Mate, that, that worked out well. And what were some of the shows you worked on at Carlton? Uh, well, the first big one I worked on was Sharp uh, with Sean Bean and the guys um, because they also bought Central Television. Uh, Michael Green was, was in a buying mood and Central TV had Moss and Sharp and did they have a touch of Frost? They might have had a touch of Frost as well. So those big shows suddenly all came in through our doors and... Um, and so, yeah, so I'd, I'd find myself, because we filmed Sharp in Turkey for the last couple of seasons. It had been filmed in Russia for season one, which back in those days was insane, probably. And it got in a bit of trouble just financially. So we took right. it to Turkey, which was a lot cheaper to be in, allegedly. Now, it was. It was actually a lot cheaper to be in. But it was kind of insane, too, because we didn't really know anything about Turkey in terms of filming there. And we were, you know, taking out 70-odd people and dumping them in the middle of bloody Ankara and saying, good luck. And uh, so I, I could get in a plane and go out there. And, and uh, thankfully, the, the director was fantastic, fantastic old boy who just, you couldn't stop him. He was unstoppable. He just kept going all the time. So I, I didn't really have that much to do. And then, then I got in with Nigel Havers and, and Michael Whitehall, whose son now, Jack Whitehall, is doing remarkably well. But Michael uh, made a lot, she made Element of Doubt and a couple of other big TV two-parters. Two-parters were very big at that time. It's a two-ninety-minute thing was the, the place we were going. And so, yeah, so I found myself enjoying that for three, three and a bit, four years, I guess. Yeah. And then, uh, then again, I, I, I worked on a, a movie called An Awfully Big Adventure, which is very, very lovely. It was a lovely film. It died in its ass in the theatre and, and it didn't really do anything. But it was Mike New's next big film with Hugh Grant, so everybody was very pumped about that. And it was lovely. And, and I got to know some really great people. Um, and, and I got to know this chap, Victor Glynn, who ran Portman Entertainment. And Portman had been massive. And he'd done quite a lot in Australia, actually. And, and, and he was kind of my next job, which I didn't know at the time. He just sort of became a mate. And then uh, we made a we made a, a 290 minute of Rebecca, the Daphne de Maurier story with Charlie Dance and Millie Fox and 
Faye Dunaway and Diana Rigg, which was, you know, it was great. It's fantastic. Yeah. And um, uh, do you want a quick Faye Dunaway story? Yeah, there, go for it. There are a few. Faye Dunaway was a nightmare, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> I think I guess you have been sued, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the system had just made Faye Dunaway into a kind of, a, a little bit of a monster, you know, and and and, uh, and so we we're all a bit nervous about Faye Dunaway's arrival. She was playing the Dowager. I don't know if you know the Rebecca story, but there's a Dowager American woman that the young girl looks after, and uh, Faye Dunaway was playing the Dowager American woman. Diana Rigg was playing Mrs. Danvers, the dark housekeeper of Mandalay, and uh, and so. Russell Harty was a guy who did a TV interview show on a Friday night in the UK. And I'm at home and the TV's on, Russell Harty's on. And blow me down with a feather, Faye Dunaway's on the show. And she just got off the plane that afternoon. And I'm like, wow, we none of us knew this was happening. This turn off the books. And she's glowing about being in the UK and looking forward to working on this great TV series adaptation of Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. And we're I'm thinking, this is great. What great publicity. And, you know, Russell says, and what, are you, what are you looking forward to most? Oh, working with Diana Rich. She's such a great actor, and I so look forward to working with her. It'll be great to be with her and really trade stories. And, and this would all be fine, except the two characters never meet on the show. <laughs> so I'm sitting there going, well, this is great, but they're never going to meet. So I called Jonathan Powell. I said, Jonathan, you watch it. He said, it's great. And I said, no, it's not great. She's going on about Diana Rich. She never gets to meet Diana Rich. What the hell are we going to do? And he said, oh, Christ, yeah, you're right. Okay, um, let's organise a dinner and they can they can have dinner at least together and we can work it out. So we very quickly organised a very expensive dinner somewhere. Be one of the Conrad restaurants back in those days, I guess. And uh, and we're all there. You know, Charlie dances there. He's, he's lovely. Millie Fox, it was her first thing she'd ever done in TV. And Diana Rick and Jonathan and I. And Faye Dunaway was like 25 minutes late to dinner. It was just fine. We all just sat around and chatted. And Diana Rick was very straightforward and just wanted to talk about fishing most of the time, to be honest. She was a mad fisherwoman. And so Dunaway arrives and, and everyone's great and it's all going well. The maitre d' comes out and says, So, Miss Dunaway, what, what, what would you like this evening? And she, said, she goes in her handbag. She brings out a small foil package. It opens up and there's a piece of fish in it. She said, I just like this lightly grilled. And God bless the maitre d' doesn't blink an eye. He just certainly missed anyway, not a problem at all. We're all horrified. Just as he's taking it, she says, hang on a minute. She goes in her bag, she brings out, I don't know, something about this size, I guess. And it was a small electronic scales weighing thing. And she put the fish on it and it was a bit too heavy. So she cut a bit off and then wrapped the rest of it and put it back in her bag again. And that's how it went. And from then on in, we knew we were in a bit of trouble. And we were. She'd just walk off set. You wow. go, what the heck, you know? Yeah. How we, you know, because I, 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 first thing I'm there, I'm on the split and, I'm, and and she walks off and I say to the director, that wasn't in the, he said, no, no, she would just be going to make a phone call. And I go, okay. That was my first experience of a really kind of crazed American machine that had made this great actor into kind of a screaming habdab by the by her 50s, I suppose, you know? Yeah, yeah, wow. Wow. Mate, um, there's so much to talk about. I'm going to have to um, speed through a few sections yeah, here yeah, uh, to get to the Aussie adventure. So <laughs> you, you wound up at Columbia TriStar for a while as um, VP, head of business affairs and production yeah. there. Um, <laughs> yeah. How long were you there? And just give us, a, give us a few of the titles you worked on while you were there. Uh, two and a half years. Um, I did it for the money. 
and I've never done anything for the money again. Uh, right. It, it, well, it's not true. I, I kind of did it for the promise of what it offered, and that was a chance to work for a big machine in a way. Because at that time, Columbia TriStar had just been bought by Sony, and there was much debate going on in LA about a, a Japanese company, especially buying one of the kind of iconic studios. And it was quite controversial at the time. Yeah. And so we were the London joint venture with Sony Columbia TriStar. And it was my first foray in any meaningful way, if it was meaningful, into LA. I, I, know, I mean, it was fantastic in some ways. Like, I mean, they had so much money in comparison to, you know, even, I mean, the BBC had plenty of money, but everyone was very careful with their money. It was always very aware it was taxpayer money, you know, so there was always a kind of edge to it. Yeah. Um, but with the Americans, it was like, yeah, we got money and we, and we want you to spend it. And so you go, yeah, okay. So money was no object, which you would have thought would have been fantastic, but it kind of wasn't. It was all a bit, after about a year I worked out, it was all a bit shallow and I didn't really like it. And I, Ellie and I came to a conclusion about one another after about a year. And that was that we liked one another well enough. You know, we kind of, we were cool with one another, but we just were never going to be best mates, you know? And that was fine. Both Ellie and I were fine with that. We, uh, you know, I enjoyed it. I met some lovely people and, uh, but I, I couldn't work out what was real and what wasn't real. And it was driving me slightly insane. And my biggest fear was that I would become like it. And I didn't really want to be that. Right. I liked New York a lot more than I liked LA. I always felt very comfortable in New York. I felt very comfortable in London. And I never felt at all comfortable in LA. It just yeah. always felt like it was such a fake thing that I didn't I, buy. And I kind of refused to buy into it, which was my weakness rather than its failing in a way. I just didn't want it. And that was kind of odd. It was, it was sort of disappointing because I, I guess, you know, you always think of LA as, you know, the kind of mecca of yeah. uh, filmmaking, which of course it is to some extent, but I just didn't get it at all. I, I, can well, I, I got it completely and I didn't, I didn't like what I got. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So mate, give us a couple of the titles you worked on there before you're all. Well, here's, about- a remar- <laughs> <laughs> here's a remarkable thing about LA. You can, two and a half years, you can do nothing. Wow. We, it's not quite true. We made we made a couple of docos. We made a nil-fated pilot comedy show, which convinced me that comedy was not my bag. An Englishman in New York, it was called, and uh, it was just a piece of trousers. We were <laughs> we were we were trying to satisfy the UK audience, but at the same time make it so it worked for America, and it just fell between those two stools with a hefty clunk. I fear. <laughs> and then the closest I got to making anything worth a damn was I, I nearly made Father Brown back then. The the controller of drama at ITV at that time said, if you can get Robert Hardy to play Father Brown, then we'll commission Father Brown from you guys. <laughs> and he did that knowing that Robert Hardy was really hard to get. And I got him. And then they wouldn't commission the damn thing. Oh. And I called them up and I, I said, come on, what are we doing? He said, if I got him, you'd do it. And he, and we went out to lunch, and back in those days, I won't say who it was, but, you know, this was the mid-90s. It's funny how things have changed so dramatically. In the mid-90s, nobody in the UK was very comfortable with the idea of an American-owned production company because their fear was, and they told me, so I know it to be true, was that they weren't going to be dealing with me in the end. They were going to be dealing with a guy in LA, and they didn't want that. They did not right. want to be controlled by a studio head in LA using me as a kind of Trojan horse to get in. Gotcha. So, no, here we are, you know, 30 years later and, you know, try spotting 
anybody who's not got some affiliation with an American studio, and it's quite difficult to do. But back in those days, there was a real fear of it turning into something that they were not able to control and that would eventually subsume them, and they didn't like it. So as a result, it was very hard for us to make any shows. And as a result of all of that, I took my leave of Columbia Tricep because I didn't want to just be in development hell for the next five years. Yeah, so with yeah. much regret, I I called the guys up one morning and said, I'm done. And they, what do you mean? I said, I'm done. I just, I can't do it anymore. So I packed it in and my wife and indeed everyone else who knew me said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? My intention at that time, I think it was like August time in the UK, it was quite sunny. And I thought, you know what? I haven't had a bloody break in 10 years. I might just chill out for 10 minutes and breathe the air. Had two young kids. Thought, you know, what the hell? Maybe just take it easy. And then um, Jonathan Pell called me up and said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. He said, they're looking for someone in Granada to head up their drama production site. Are you interested? And I said, I don't know. He said, fuck off. What do you mean you don't know? Just, you know. Just call them, right? So I, I called them and I said, you know, Jonathan said I should give you a call. Oh, it was this guy, Simon Lewis, who was head of drama. He said, yeah, yeah, no, he said he was going to talk to you. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, sure. He said, well, we're just, we've just shortlisted. We've gone through a list. We've got two people that are on the shortlist. Do you want to be on the shortlist? And I knew both people and I thought, oh, I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe. I'll go on then. And then I got the bloody job. So... The first thing I had to do was call up both of my mates who were the shortlisted two people and apologize for having blacked <laughs> my way into the fucking, you know, like you'd hate that guy, wouldn't you? I mean, I hated him. I hated him. You know, and I, and I was him. I'm going, what, what a prick. But um, yeah, so, so I got that job. And so that I was back in the networks again. So you headed back to London? Yeah. So I was back in TV network land and, and uh, uh, as though I'd never been away. <laughs> it was slightly different because it was ITV. It wasn't the Beeb, and it, it was bigger. Granada were the biggest player in town at that time in the game. You know, they Coronation Street, they had Prime Suspect. Tons of stuff that people thought had been BBC shows had been done through Granada. So it was a big job. I, I did enjoy it. But I then found myself getting, I think someone, it may have been Oscar Wilde, maybe, said, so if, if you're tired of London, you're tired of life. But I, I got tired of London. We had two young kids, and I kind of didn't want to bring my kids up in London, particularly. No, in truth, I could have moved out to the countryside, probably, now that, you know, you look right. back on it. But at that time, it felt like a clean break was required. And my wife at that time was Australian, and uh, we knew Melbourne really well. And uh, and we thought, what the hell? Why don't we um, sell up and get out again? So we did. And uh, Wow. And that's that's how you wound up here. That's how I'm here today talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> so did you have a job to come to or no, did you, no, you just arrived and you just, uh, you know, made it up as you went along? Yeah, pretty much. My ex-wife at that time was a lawyer and a very good lawyer and indeed still is a, a lawyer and a very good lawyer. My, my father once said the, the two foolish things we do in life is marry a lawyer and the other one is divorce her. <laughs> so that was, that was, thanks, Dad. Thanks for that. But... Uh, <laughs> Probably wasn't wrong in the great scheme of things. But uh, yeah, so we came down and she did very quickly get a job because, you know, so TV lawyers were, were in short supply at that point in time. And, and she was back in her own country in a way. Even though we can all speak the language, for me, it was a foreign country. So it was quite interesting. I didn't know anyone here particularly. Uh, I knew a couple of people, but I didn't really have that background of people you grew up with in the business. You know, I didn't have that. So that was quite, that was quite a challenge initially, actually. 
But when I left the UK, Andrea Wonfer, who ran Granada at that time, had said to me, hey, if you're going to Australia, then we've just bought this company, uh, Artist Services, uh, and we're going to sell them off as Granada Australia. Why don't you take a job with us? And I said, no, no, it sounds horrible. It was like a political, I don't know if you remember, it was a real political quagmire at that time that this British company was buying up services from Steve. You know, it was the biggest, best known production company in Australia, for sure. And suddenly they've been bought by the Brits. Yeah. Because now that I've been in Australia 20 years, I feel the depth of the pain that that would have caused. And I talked to a few mates down here that I did know, and they said, oh, no, it's all a bit of a mess. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't want to do that. So I initially said no to that very kind kind of offer of coming into a job. And then after we'd been here, we got here about the Christmas of, it was 20 years now, so 2000. And uh, it was about the March or April time, I think, probably I got a call from Paul Jackson, who had been my boss at Carlton TV. And Paul, most famously, was a producer, creator of The Young Ones. And, you know, it was a bit of a kind of legend and a really terrific uh, guy who'd been very kind to me in the past and, and kind of looked after me as if when I was a bit of a kid, really. And so he called and, and said, come on, come and work with us. And I went, oh, I don't know. Sounds like a bit of a mess. He said, nah, it's going to be fine. It's going to be you know, an independent production company. We're going to set it up. It'll be great. Come in as our head of production. And so I went, yeah, sure, why not? And, uh, and so that got me in at the business down here again. And it, to be honest with you, my instinct was, well, if nothing else, I'll be talking to people without looking for a job. So that's always good. So I can get to know a whole bunch of people and have a chat and not be, ah, you don't know me from a hole in the ground, but I'm looking for work. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was my kind of first intro. Really, was was through. I think we were called we were called Red Heart at one time or some damn thing. It was a joint venture with Channel Seven because it turns out that Artist Services had shares in Channel Seven or Channel Seven had shares in Artist Services from way back in the day. So that when Granada bought the company, they also bought a kind of relationship with Channel Seven. So it was all gotcha. So, a bit incestuous to be honest and, and it, was, it was a little bit it was, it was slightly tasteless in a way and uh, and Andrew Knight was there and Deb was there and they were all very lovely and so we had a very nice time but I couldn't quite see where it was all going and drama was not their their thing particularly they were very much as they still are I think it's fair to say still in the format business you know so it was a lot of uh, a lot of shiny floor production rather than drama production so there really wasn't much for me to get my teeth into because Cox Knight were doing any drama that was going. And at that point, Sea Change had just kind of finished by a couple of years, probably. So they were looking for another couple of things to do, but it felt like there was nothing much happening there. So I did it for a year, maybe not even a full year. And then and then I left. I just I said a pause. I said, I don't quite know what I'm doing here, to be honest. Like right. it's very nice and all, but I don't think <laughs> I don't think I can legitimately keep taking your money. <laughs> we're not making anything and so god bless him he very graciously said no you're right so i did and um yeah cool mate cool thanks for that so i'm going to fast forward to a few of the things you you made once you were here uh mm. you did three seasons of bed of roses which you created and script developed yeah um, that was that was a great series i didn't watch the whole lot i must be honest but i watched the first season and kerry armstrong she's a great talent and it was a great show well, look, it's a funny old bittersweet kind of thing, that. And, and I love Steve, and God bless his soul, he's recently passed away, uh, mate. That show came to me whilst I was at Granada looking for shows. And uh, I really liked the idea of this woman who had everything and then lost it all. And they had to go back to where she came from, kind of tail between her legs, 
when it came to me, it was called No Job Too Small because the guy ran a building kind of jobbing business and the wife was going to run it with some women helping her build stuff and what have you. And, and I liked the notion of it and I liked the idea and I had optioned it. And then Liz and I took it on and, and I took it with me when I left Granada. I took like two or three shows with me. They were very kind and said, yeah, take those shows with you because we're not really doing drama at the moment. So you may as well take them and see what you can do and pay us back if it ever gets off the ground kind of thing. Um, so we didn't like the title, No Job Too Small. So we came better Rosies because we were, so here's a funny detail. So we're in the car one Saturday heading for the country. I can't even remember which we we village we stopped in somewhere out, out towards Yandoit way, out towards Dalesford way. Anyway, we we're talking about this show and no job too small. Yeah, I don't like the title. Uh, and Liz said, look, I once watched Paul Kelly sing this song, Bed of Roses. It's a beautiful song. And it's, you know, lay down in a bed of roses, woke up in a bed of nails. And I went, fuck, that's it. That's, that's the theme of the whole damn show. You know, she lay down in a bed of roses, she woke up in a bed of nails. Because back in those days, we didn't have Spotify around, so we couldn't just click on it and get a song. So um, once we get back to town on, on, on Sunday night, we'll find the song and, and maybe we can get someone to re-record that. But let's call the show Bed of Roses. Anyway, we go into this wee antique shop. I was a want. And we're wandering around looking at shite, really, that's overpriced. And, <laughs> and, and um, Liz comes on and said, listen to that song. And so I listen and lay down on a bed of roses, woke up on a bed of nails. So I go up to the counter there's a young, young kid at the counter. And I said, hey, son, is that on the radio or, or, or what? Is it on a CD or something? Because we've just been talking about that song and we're going to like use it in a TV show and this sounds really weird, but that's, it, so it'd be really good to know. And he said, that song? And I said, yeah, that song. He said, that's my dad's song. My dad wrote that song. It was his dad's CD he was playing and it was his what? own the song, right? So we just like, well, that's fucked. Well, you know, we got no choice now. We just, I mean, the ABC had no idea we were doing all this. It was just like, they were no job too small. We were like two drafts into the thing. I went back on the Monday and ca- called the BBC up, Robin Kershaw, and said, we're changing the title of this show. And she said, what to? I said, Better Rosie. She said, why? And I said, because, told her the story. And she went, yeah, you have no choice. We've got to call it Better Rosie's. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Oh my God! And that's wow. how we came better, Rosie. But but after eighteen months of developing the show, so we'd had eighteen months, and Scott Meek came into the job, who I knew from the UK. He took me out to lunch. He said, "Oh, we love uh, Better Rosies." I said, "Yeah, when are we going to make it?" He said, "Well, we just want to do a wee bit more work on the script and a bit." And I said, "I can't." I said, "Man, I just can't. I can't afford it, and and I, I've kind of lost the will to live on it." So, I I, I just I'm going to find somebody who'll be prepared to do more work on it, but it's not me. And I sold it to, to Ruby Entertainment. So I sold it to them. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't be bothered. Wow. I couldn't be asked with it anymore. I, I got so fed up. And, and you're right. Kerry's fantastic. But, you know, the first person I spoke to to play the lead was Jackie Weaver. I, I went to Steve Weiser. Like, so I was still at Granada now that I think about it. So it was before I left. And I said to Steve, can you hook me up with Jackie Weaver? And he, he said, of course, why? And I said, I've got this show and I think she'd be great for it. And he said, well, I've not had anyone say that for a while. I said, she's fantastic. Why the hell is she not working more? And wow. so, and back in those days, I could phone Jackie and she'd come down North Street and, and into the offices, you know, that day. And she was lovely and she was really smart and really, just really cool. And, and I, I said to her, I said, if you were in the UK, you'd just be constantly working. 
I don't understand why you've not just yeah. been doing more and more and more. And and it's felt like a great story for her. It was a story of a woman who, who you know, just had everything, but just it always never quite worked out, you know? And I yeah, thought, wow. you know, the old story, it's like you know, not much acting required there, actually, to dig into that, the meat of that story. So, so going from a kind of Jackie Weaver-driven show to what felt like a slightly off-kilter, sea-changey kind of show just wasn't where I wanted to be at that moment. Gotcha. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that that part of the story. Mate, I'm going to jump on to Wolf Creek, no, which, yes. which uh, I think you you helped finance and you were executive producer. Is that right? Yeah, rather interestingly, someone just called me. About, well, two things interesting about Wolf Creek. They've only happened in the last two days. Uh, one was that somebody called me to say, did you EP Wolf Creek? And if you did, can you give me a call? Because I'm trying to put together a show that's not dissimilar. And, and then the other one was I was in a cafe yesterday morning. I'm talking with a new friend of us who sends his love, Rod Hardy, by the way. Oh, nice. And before Rob got there, I was having a cup of tea. And, um, and Greg was in. And Greg came over. And he and I had really had a full-on conversation for ages and ages and ages. So we were just sitting having a bit of a natter. And it's, I, I think it's like 16 years or something since we made the bloody thing. Mm. Um, which, which we both found remarkable. And, uh, yeah, so I, 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 but I was saying to the first person who called, yes, I was one of the many, it would appear, bloody EPs on that show, but I like to think I was the first one. And, and I was the director of the company and all that malarkey. And, and, and it came about because Greg and I were talking about another show he had called The Bridge, which was a fantastic script. And I must remind him of that script. In my opinion, a better tale than Wolf Creek. But when we got to know one another, Greg said, you like a bit of genre, don't you? I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, I've got this script. Have a read, tell me. So I did. I had a read, and, and and it was really good. It wasn't as dark as the show in the end was, but it was quite dark and, you know, pretty brutal. As my mother said, when she finally watched the uh, DVD, she called me up and said, I've just watched Wolf Creek, son. I went, oh, how'd you go with that, Mom? She said, quite challenging, isn't it? I said, yeah, quite challenging, Mom. You're absolutely right, quite challenging. Um, at that time, Greg, I think, had been hawking it around the traps with a budget of about $6.8 million from memory. You know, first-time director, genre film, 16 years ago, nobody wanted a genre film, uh, and, and, and at a pretty high budget. And so he wasn't getting very far with it. And i just come off Japanese story with David Lightfoot. I'd been the completion Bond guy, and I knew David real well by the end of that show. And, and so I called David up and said, I'm going to send you a script. Uh, tell me how little you can make it for. And he came back, and he, God bless him, he got it down, I think, of 2.3 or 2.4 million which is pretty good from 6.8. And I said, not too much. You know, oh, mate, what are you going to do? Yeah. I said, well, I said, a million is kind of what I'm hoping for. And he went, oh. He said, well, the only way you can do it for a million is if I go to Adelaide and call in all the favours of all the mates I know in Adelaide. I said, yeah, well, why don't you do that? And so we ended up with a budget of around, I think, 1.2, 1.4 million. Um, and, and it got made. But, you know, Greg was very canny, very clever. And, you know, John Jarrett, was there for a whole bunch of reasons, the least of which was that we knew he was Tarantino's favourite Australian actor. And if we got it to Toronto or one of those gigs, uh, then Tarantino would see it and Tarantino would call Weinstein and Weinstein would buy the movie and that's exactly what happened. Wow. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. Wow, that's amazing. Mate, don't you love it when a plan comes together? Yeah, totally, man. That's... I mean, you, you, exactly how Greg foresaw it was exactly how it played out. Wow. And um, So it was very canny. 
Wow. And it was you know, and it was huge. I mean, it was it was I think until the latest Mad Max movie, the Fury Road movie, which I think it was R rated. I think Wolf Creek was the number one R rated movie of all time in Australian cinema. Yeah. yeah. Um, unfortunately, you know, great news the the Weinstein's put the money up. Bad news the Weinstein's put the money up. Very hard to get any more money out than once they put their initial money on the table back in those days. And um, we paid the price for that machine taking it on. None of us saw anything like the amount of money that was that was made out of that movie. Yeah. And, and nobody was prepared to go after them because they were so powerful at that time that the uh, that nobody here was prepared to take them on because yeah. they were pumping money into Australian films. So they could kind of do what they liked in a way. And they did, as we know, in so many ways. So yeah, so so Wolf Creek was a was a was a really interesting, yeah, interesting journey. I mean, it's, all this stuff's fascinating, really. You know, it's all it's all stuff you learn from, and you go, yeah. Every time I think I know what I'm doing, I kind of go, oh, maybe I don't know what I'm doing. Actually, I need to find out more. Uh, so you're always finding out more stuff all the time. Yeah. Absolutely, mate. Let's jump to the Doctor Blake mysteries. Yeah, you yes. created, produced, mm-hmm. was showrunner of probably one of the most successful Australian series ever, certainly for its five seasons. It was the the top Australian drama for, yeah. for five years and probably had it been in the UK, it would have been, you know, running forever for 20 years. It'd be a Doc Martin or something because it, it yeah, really... Yeah, Yeah, it never waned, yeah. the, the interest and the ratings. And, um, yeah, I had the great fortune. Thank you for inviting me to oh, come along and, you. Pleasure. and uh, direct great. a few eps. Um Mate, oh, beautiful big silver plane, huh? Remember that plane? Oh, mate, what a what a glorious ep that was. <laughs> that was a cracker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, so yeah, give us a little insight into that, and I guess yeah. you know your dream of of writing. I guess you you didn't write the scripts, but having created the series and the characters was a long held dream, I imagine. Yeah, and um, yeah, it was a move. Yeah, it was. It, well, it was. It was. Um. You know, as you guys know, it, this game is either it, often it's either feast or famine. You know, and uh, and we'd gone through a kind of famine stage, uh, uh, Liz and I, and we were we were completely skint. In fact, I was just saying to my oldest boy the other day, we had sixty bucks in the bank. I seem to remember, and a mate of mine offered me a gig in Ballarat, producing an installation at Sovereign Hill that told the story of the Kresik mining disaster, which is a fascinating tale. And, and and he called me up and said, hey, George, do you want to produce this uh, installation? And I said, well, yeah, but I said, I, I, I've never done it before. He said, it's just like building a set. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It'll be good. I'm like, okay, sure. So I found myself up in the rat for six, as we lovingly know it, for about six months of, um, gosh, 20, I don't know, 2011, 2012, yeah. something like that. That's Ballarat for people that, that don't oh, sorry, know Ballarat, of it as the yeah. rat. <laughs> Right. Yes. And, and Ballarat at that time was not the bustling metropolis that it is now uh, in so short a time. You know, I'd like to think we contributed to that a wee bit. But I found myself up there on and off for about six months or so doing this installation at Sovereign Hill. And I got to know the town quite well. And I got to know some of the people in the town quite well. And I really loved the vibe of the town. It was very, it was very European. It was very Northern England. It was very kind of Liverpool, Manchester and, you know, Birmingham, uh, Leeds kind of vibe to it. And when you look at how it was created, you know why, because it was born out of the sweat of people digging stuff out of the ground, you know, or building ships or all that really hard graft that made all that money that allowed these guys to then build monuments to themselves on every street corner. 
And the rat was very much that. Ballarat felt like it was one of those northern towns. I thought this would be a great backdrop for a TV series. And I'd just been over in the UK and I hadn't been back for a while. And I went back to the village that I was born in and come from. And I came from there, but I didn't really know it anymore. And people who thought they knew me didn't know me anymore. They knew the kid, but they didn't know me. And I thought, it's not odd when you've been away and you come back to somewhere that you belong to, but you kind of don't belong anymore. And that got me thinking about a character who comes back from the war, takes over his father's medical practice, stops solving crimes. It was as basic as that. And um, I'd always been a Sexton Blake fan. Well, I was going to say, I usually have a Sexton Blake book kicking around. I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan, but Sexton Blake was always kind of an underrated kind of Sherlock Holmes for me. So I called him Dr. Blake for that reason. And I wanted a slightly unusual name. And I'd been thinking about Moss and, you know, Endeavour was, was interesting. And then I was thinking about French artists and I liked the idea that, you know, it was Lucy and Freud. And I thought, yeah, Lucy and Blake. Okay, Lucy and Blake, that's kind of cool. And then we've got backstory because the mother will be French and she's an artist and the dad was a doctor and blah, blah, blah. So all that stuff was floating around in my head. And I wrote... I don't know, about five or six pages of notes and then put it in a drawer and didn't think anything about it. Finished my installation gig and got a call from Tony Wright, who I knew a bit. Uh, and Tony said, hey, Josh, I'm just doing a bit of a ring round because the ABC are looking for a detective series. I don't suppose you've got anything. I said, as it happens, I think I do, yeah. And so I sent him these three or four scant pages of notes on, on a couple of the characters and a couple of the episodes and he said, this is great. Send me what you've got. So I went, yeah, sure. That was all I had. So I then quickly wrote out another half dozen pages of stuff. <laughs> fired up and went, hey, brilliant. I'm going to send this to ABC if you're all right. I said, yeah, sure. Knock yourself out. Go for it. The ABC read it, came back and said, this is great. Send us what you've got. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I just found myself on the right more. And, 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 uh, and yeah, before we knew where we were, you know, I had very good inroads with ITV. There was a guy called Richard Life who had been down here who had met Tony, and he was he was the head guy at ITV. And so we went to ITV in the UK uh, and the ABC here and convinced both of them, plainly old, if you go, they'll go, to both of them, that they should both chip in to 50-50 development on this show. And they did. And um, to be honest with you, it all fell into place very quickly really after that I brought out a mate of mine Steve Matthews who at that time was associate producer on Silent Witness and he understood procedural uh, drama and he was a great writer still is a great writer and we got local writers who really didn't get procedural because we'd never really done it in any meaningful way you know detectively procedurally stuff and, and we, we went up to Ballarat for a long weekend and we met a whole bunch of people and we walked around the town and we met an old doctor and and this beautiful old nurse they'd both been doctors and nurses at that time and the rats so they were quite quite old at that stage they were in their 80s and the old boy was lovely but it was it was the the old matron who was fantastic and as we were leaving she turned to me and she said they all thought they were god you know they could do what they wanted and uh, and i went yeah there you go you can do what you want because you're a doctor in 1959. You were God. You know, no one was going to question a doctor in 59. So that gave me a real insight into the character of, of Lucy and Blake. And, uh, and yeah, so we very quickly, we were off to, we were off to the races. And I, I had been 
originally I, I'd spoken with Barry Humphreys people about Barry playing uh, Lucy and Blake because I wanted somebody quite surprising at that stage of the game. And I wanted, in my head, I had this sort of probably quite naive notion that Barry Humphreys may not want to be remembered totally for just Dame Edna and maybe he wanted to have something else. No. <laughs> <laughs> quite happy to be remembered as Dame Edna. Yeah. Um, but um, so, I, but I thought he'd be a really fascinating choice, and I got quite far down the road in discussing things. But it, as you know, it's enormously physically demanding that gig, and and also um, he makes so much money being Dame Edna that, that we were never going to be able to pay him enough yeah. to justify the that six of the year that he wouldn't be able to do Dame Edna. Basically, that, that's right, mate. It was an inspired choice uh, casting Craig McLaughlin as the Doctor. Yeah. yeah, I noticed there was a pattern to famous actors becoming detectives when they were older. So John Thaw was in the Sweeney, became Moss. David Jason, Only Fools and Horses, became Frost. John Nettles Bergerac became Midsommars. And I thought, holy God, there's a real pattern to people really loving somebody when they're younger and then when they get older, going into an older role that's still kind of cool. And I thought the audience liked the idea that they're watching themselves getting older, but still being active and doing things and being capable yeah. in characters. And so uh, I noticed that pattern. Uh, and, you know, Martin Shaw, uh, you know, George Gently, uh, which we were very closely aligned to that time because they both happened around the same time. And for the UK audience, I think it felt very similar in tone. If anything, Gently was a wee bit darker, I think, uh, than, than we were. And so... So there was that kind of thing going around my head, and, and God knows we saw bloody everyone. We, you know, we auditioned tons of people, and we were down to the last four people. And I wanted to do a dress final audition to see people in period costume and see how that changed them and what they looked like and how it would play. And so that's the stage we were at when um, Craig's name came up as somebody who who we should think about. And to be perfectly honest, I thought. I hadn't really thought of that. And then I remembered my little theory of somebody who'd been really huge when they were younger coming back as a detective. And I thought, well, he fits that pattern. And then he did an audition in LA in his agent's office that was, frankly, just fantastically good and, and, and different and, and, and still a bit sparky. Yeah. And, and he looked like Craig McLaughlin and he was still managing to convince me he was, you know, he wasn't. Yeah. So that was interesting. I mean, to be honest, there was a bit of reticence at the ABC. Yeah, you know, Will McGuinness, who, who I really like as an actor, um, would have been everyone's first choice. I hate to say this, except mine. Sorry, Will. And the, the problem at that point in time was nothing to do with Will. It was when you put him in 1950s suits, he looks like he's just stepped out of Sullivan's and he's never left Australia. And I needed somebody who looked like he didn't fit back into Australia. I needed somebody who looked like he'd been away for a long time and came back and wasn't enormously comfortable about being here. Whereas Will, walking down the streets of Ballarat in a 50s suit, he owns the street. You know, he's not uncomfortable. He's not an uncomfortable dude. You know, he's very comfortable in his skin. And he's um, a big lad. And he's, you know. Yeah. And so I, I, I actually felt really bad because Will kind of, suffered from that more than anything else but but McLaughlin on the day when we did the dress auditions he, I, he got off the plane and I've told this story before but, and and uh, uh, I we'd never met 
you know, and, and he came down in, in, in skivvy and shorts and a pair of flip-flops, and I thought, well, maybe I've made a really big mistake here, you know? And, and it was lovely, and we sat in the car, and we, and we got there, and then they put him in, and they tied the hair back in a bun, and, 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 and yeah, he, he was, for me, there was, it was a no-brainer. He was the guy for the job. You're right. Anyway. Mate, we've we've come on a, a long journey here this morning. <laughs> My God, we have. So part four. <laughs> That's right, mate. What are you What are you up to right now? And um, I hope I hope we're going to see another George Adams series very soon. Me too. 2019 was the year of developing shows on the basis that 2020 was the year I was going to go out and sell them all. Yeah. So that went, that went horribly awry. Um, so I, I kind of I decided in kind of April of last year that, that uh, okay, well, if we can't do anything, we may as well just keep honing the shows that we have and see if we can come up with a couple of others. And so I've got something that the UK, well, a couple of things the UK are interested in at the moment. So I'm talking with a couple of biggish players over there about a couple of projects, which is fun. Um, I'm uh, adapting a very well-known series of books which is is great and and so i'm so i'm writing the pilot episode of that having created the bible last year um which i can't say any more about but yeah i've got um three things at the moment that i'm really excited about two of which are completely my own and one of which is with other parties where i'm on board as the kind of producer showrunner person but yeah my own stuff seems to be getting a bit of a run at the moment so i'm kind of focusing in on that a wee bit um but I'm also, you know, I've, I've got about 20 things on a slate, which is daft, I know. <laughs> but it's a numbers game. So you've got to just, you know, keep throwing stuff at the wall and some of it will stick. So I'm ever hopeful that by october time we'll be, you know, well on the road to one of those happening for next year, which is always fun. But yeah, no, it's been good. And Dean Garner and I, when we were all trapped in our houses, as we all were, we created uh, this little audio series called Forgotten Mysteries where we're taking the stories of Baroness Dorsey and Lady Molly of Scotland Yard, and we've turned them into audio adventures, which has been great fun. Yeah, uh, they're uh, great, mate. Yeah, you enjoy them. Lady's been in her son's wardrobe, uh, dead in the sun. <laughs> uh, Dale Cornelius has been down in his studio doing the music for it. And and and, and we had this lovely fellow, Russell Goldsmith, who's a great sound engineer, uh, doing doing the really important stuff of making it sound good. Uh, <laughs> none of us, none of us left our own homes, so that's all been fun. Amazing. You don't know you can do it. Yeah, that's brilliant, but mate. That, that's what we got to do. Pivot's the name of the game. Totally, mate. I better wrap this up. I'm sure you got other yeah. things to do today, but um, absolutely lovely to have a chat and um, to lovely to get some insights into you know. Your wild career, let's call it a career. And, <laughs> call it a career. Yeah. <laughs> and um, mate, I'm a fan of your work and I very much look forward to the next instalment. Thanks, man. Thanks for tuning into this episode. There's plenty of takeouts from this conversation with George, isn't there? One that sticks with me is that if you're in a dead end job, then have a crack at your dream job. You might just pull it off. For more information, head to IMDb for a full production listing under George Adams III or gambitmediagroup.com, which is George's website. Until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. 
This has been a Milovich production.